Welcome to the Optimal Body Podcast. I'm Doc Jen. And I'm Dr. Dom. And we are doctors of physical therapy, bringing you the body tips and physical therapy pearls of wisdom to help you begin to understand your body, relieve your pains and restrictions, and answer your questions. Along with expert guests, our goal of the Optimal Body Podcast is really to help you discover what optimal means within your own body. Let's dive in. So through this podcast, Jen and I just love giving information on movement, pain, nutrition, and just all areas of how to optimize health. But one of the difficult things is knowing where to start, knowing just how to dive in and what to do. That's why we've developed the Gen Health platform. And this week only, this week only, we have a massive sale coming up to the 4th of July. You can get into the full year subscription of Gen Health at 60% off. 60% off. That's the biggest discount we give to anybody. So if you've been looking to dive in and maybe join our movement community, go to the link in the show notes, Gen Health, or you can just type in gen.health into your browser and it'll bring you right there. You get a free week trial. And this platform really was built to provide you plans to follow along with day to day for your hip, for your back, core, mobility, low impact, anything that you're looking for. And there's an explore section that allows you to search by key terms, a lot of Jen's most popular Instagram posts. So go check it out. Get that movement journey started today. We have it laid out for you so simply. So you know what to do day to day to just get started in that movement journey. Continue to work through those restrictions, any pains that you've been experiencing. Go to the link in the show notes, gen.health and get that 60% off today. Let's jump into the interview. Here for our next interview is Andrea Nakayama, who is a functional medicine nutritionist and educator who has led thousands of clients and now teaches even more coaches and clinicians around the world in a revolution reclaiming ownership of both their own and their clients' health. As host of the 15-Minute Matrix podcast and founder and former CEO of the Functional Nutrition Alliance, Andrea draws on systems biology, mental models, root cause methodology, and the therapeutic partnership to offer long-awaited solutions for the rapidly growing chronic illness epidemic. After losing her young husband to a brain tumor in 2002, she discovered a passion for using food as personalized medicine and is now regularly consulted as the nutrition expert for the toughest clinical cases and the practices of many world-renowned doctors. She trains nearly 4,000 practitioners each year in her methodologies so that they too can become the last stop for their clients and patients, as well as a trusted referral partner for doctors in their area. Such a great conversation coming up with Andrea. So many little tidbits about how you can start to take more control and empower yourself through information. Let's get to it. Andrea, thanks so much for being with us this morning. I don't think we've actually had any functional nutritionists on specifically to chat. I know we've had a lot of people who've talked nutrition but it's amazing to have you on as our first functional nutritionist. Yay. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here with both of you. Well, I think with that in mind, I think defining what functional nutrition, what functional medicine nutrition really means and what is it that you do in practice? Yeah, that's a great question. So in functional medicine, I like to say that we uh, adhere or ascribe to three primary tenets, and those include the therapeutic partnership, looking for the root causes, which means asking why something's happening, not just what to do about it, and embracing a systems-based approach, which includes looking at systems biology, how everything in the body is connected to each other. So the difference between functional medicine and functional nutrition comes down to the tools in our toolbox, essentially. So we should be subscribing to those tenants, but in functional nutrition, we're diving into the realities of diet and lifestyle modification. We're looking at the individual and not just seeing them once or twice or three times a year, but really in the nitty gritty of not just what it means to make habit change, but what those changes actually mean for that individual, their psychology, their physiology, and how we're looking to address their chronic signs and symptoms. I think that's so fantastic. And I love that you bring up, you know, that therapeutic partnership and almost that therapeutic team that needs to be built. Because I mean, in reality, like there are so many people in our world that need health information and that need help and that need to find the right practitioner 
to work for them. And it's not any one specific provider or practitioner that's going to get an individual their results or resonate with an individual in the right way. And nutrition and diet can really be kind of this taboo topic where if you poll an audience or if you poll the general public, the majority of them, the vast majority of them would probably say like, yeah, I know I can do better things with my nutrition, but the reality is, is we don't make those changes on our own. So can you speak to some of the challenges when you start working with an individual and talking about diet? I feel like there's an inherent challenge just in talking about that behavior change. Yeah, and you make such a good point, Dom, in terms of the team that's needed, if that's available to us, right? We tend to get a lot of our information about diet and lifestyle modification online or with Google searches, and it really is individualized. And I think that when we're subscribing to the latest trends, whether it's intermittent fasting or keto diet, and we're adopting those for our own selves, we may be bypassing something that's true or necessary for our own physiological function. And so it's important to really pay heed to what is true for us. And so one of the things I like to do is help people understand what I call the three tiers of nutrition mastery. And a little secret, I like to think of this as the three tiers of epigenetic mastery, but I know Mm. that's a complicated term. So (laughs) we can just think about it as the three tiers. Tiers of nutrition mastery. And tier number one is the non-negotiables. So I'll list the three tiers. I think of them as non-negotiables, tier one. Tier two is deficiency to sufficiency. And tier three is dismantling the dysfunction. And in a lot of our healthcare today, we skip right to tier three. What's wrong with this? What's wrong with me? What should I do about it? Mm -hmm. And we're seeking outside of ourselves for these answers to our health challenges. From my perspective, when we're looking at diet and lifestyle modification, if we really embrace tier one and tier two, tune into ourselves more and not the information that's outside of us, we come more deeply into the opportunity to shift that tier three, to shift the dysfunction that might be happening within our bodies But inadvertently, I like to think of it as working in the soil to effect that root. So if we think about our non-negotiables, in functional medicine, we call these the mediators. These are the things that help us feel better or make us feel worse. And there's some of those things we already know without getting help outside of ourselves. We could probably all sit down and make a list of the things we know help us feel better, and make us feel worse. Does that make sense as a place Mm -hmm. to start? Yeah, I love that. And I think that is an introspective way for people to start to identify for themselves and take take that, that mode to empowerment so that they feel like they're in a little bit more control. And I think that's what's scary about medicine. You're just told what to do and And a lot of times it's blind trust (laughs) and not really understanding what is what is happening or how that's going to affect you. And oftentimes, you know, you either have that blind trust and you follow it or you just don't understand it. So you don't do it. And I think that's where the fallback happens a lot of times in, in in practice. And I think what's important for what you do as well. I mean, speaking of nutrition, that is it's. It's a lifestyle change. So how do you start yes. to approach that with people to, you know, how how can we start to where we're not so overwhelmed and and it it's it's a little bit easier to start to take on. There's so much in what you just said, Jen, that I wanna reflect that empowerment, really this opportunity to have more agency and not just go into that blind trust, which I think is actually turning into a lot of distrust Mm. with our medical system Mm -hmm. uh, is super important. And what I find is that people end up in these cycles of seeking, again, this very sympathetic process, not in the rest and digest, in the fight or flight, seeking answers outside. And then those not working or not working right. And this cycle of distrust just perpetuates itself. And so that really is for me a call to come back 
into that parasympathetic state of listening in. And again, the sympathetic is the pitched forward fight or flight, I need answers. That parasympathetic is where we're in the rest and digest. We're in the feed and breed, you know, where our bodies can do the additional things they need to do, which we can't do when we're running from the tiger or the proverbial tiger. (laughs) So understanding that to heal, the body has to come into that rest and digest, understanding those non-negotiables for ourselves. And sometimes that comes from, here's the tool or the how-to from some really deep tracking. And there's lots of different things we can track, but I'm a proponent of what I like to call food, mood, poop tracking. Mm -hmm. And mood is any sign or symptom. It's not just our, you know, psychological moods. It's the back pain or the knee pain or the bloating or the migraine. It's anything I put mood in quotation marks. And we have to track and be able to step back and not be over analytical. Just put the information down to begin with. And tracking even in and of itself can be very triggering for many people these days because of their relationship with their body, with body dysphoria, with dieting or anti-diet culture. And that's not what this is about. There's no judgment. It's just an opportunity to look at data of yourself so that you can step back and maybe try to see some correlations. I think that's so great. I mean, I think of myself, even in what you say with food tracking, I've, I feel like I've always rebelled against tracking of any sorts for <laughs> yeah. that matter, whether it's, whether it's food tracking or exercise tracking. I'm just like, no, I do what I want and I listen to how I feel, which there's value in listening to how you feel after you make certain decisions. But what are some tips that you might have for people to start just a baseline of food tracking or tracking what they eat? Is it tracking calories or macros or just meals in general? How, how do you approach that? Definitely not calories or macros from my okay, perspective. Like that is not the kind of information we're looking for. And I'm with you, Dom. Like I don't love tracking unless I'm doing it for a purpose where I'm looking to step back. Like I track my labs and it allows me to see what's changing, what's different. I track my supplements, right? It's a good opportunity to take a step back. I like to think of this as slow thinking versus fast thinking, but you probably have that muscle exercise for yourself where you're tuned in. So you can say, yeah, that doesn't make me feel so well. Um, so I'm going to shift gears or maybe I need to rethink whether I consume that or do that activity, whatever it might be. But to begin with, I think just making a chart for yourself and we have a food mood poop tracker at the Functional Nutrition Alliance. It's just a PDF. So you can make a chart for yourself that's just tracking what am I eating? And you can say like, if you ate oatmeal for breakfast or a smoothie, just list the ingredients and you're not measuring them. You're not doing anything other than listing what you ate. And then for your mood, you're capturing any time of the day when something comes up that's noticeable to you, whether it's fatigue hits at 3 p.m., or you start to get you know, fuzzy eyes at 8 p.m. on the computer, you're just marking anything that might come up for you, big or little. And the poop is when you have a poop, you can use a Bristol stool chart, which is a way of quantifying how your poop looks and uh, giving it a number score and marking that. So you're putting a time of day next to everything and you're just tracking across in a uh, in the rows. So you have columns for the food, mood, and poop, rows for the time of day. So you can start to see over time, where can I make some correlative associations or ask some questions to somebody who can work with me in this area? I think all of that is so important because when we start to 
put these pieces together. You can really start to get a a picture of it all. And also, if you're not working with someone, that might feel a little overwhelming, <laughs> right? If like, well, I'm not, yes. I'm, I'm pooping a different time or I'm feeling this fatigue over and over and I think I'm eating well and this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And, you know, all of this stuff can start to get a little overwhelming. So are there other tests? Are there practitioners that you recommend like, okay, right away? Or I know that you guys probably have something as well that people can go to. Yeah. I mean, at the Functional Nutrition Alliance, we train practitioners and see patients in the patient population. And for us, we're really going to dive in. Traditionally, we work with people who are what we call the big bigs, people who have big issues, chronic Mm -hmm. health challenges, who have already made a big effort. And there's a lot that we need to dive into there and sort of pick apart because it's hard. It is hard when you're in the weeds of the situation. And for a lot of people, they don't know, like you said, Jen, what's working and what's not working. They're too in the everyday management to be able to see. And one of the problems we see is that people start eliminating more and more and more foods because their body is reactive and they can't figure out why. And so from a functional perspective, we're not just eliminating foods we're making sure we're addressing deficiencies and we're helping to heal the internal function. The body is more functional than it's not at any one time. We're designed that way. And so anchoring on the fact that we do work, it works, the body works. And where does where do we need a little bit of support, let's say for digestion, for something that isn't feeling right? So I just want to recognize that it can feel really overwhelming. When that's the case, one thing that I recommend that patients do is create a yes, no, and maybe list for themselves. Mm. So again, we're going back to those mediators or those non-negotiables, those things that help you feel better or make you feel worse. And I do believe that oftentimes we know these things if we slow down and think about them. We know you know, on these days, I feel better. On these days, I know I'm not feeling my best. I mean, I find that most people do have that sense. And then there's things that confuse them. And just even noting those for yourself is a good start to the practice. But ultimately, I think it might take somebody who can be a detective with you. Oh, yeah. So there was one thing that we kind of, you kind of brushed over. I think it was when you talked about your food, mood, and poo tracking chart that I, I think I just like talking about poo and all the stuff that we can get from it. And you mentioned the Bristol stool chart, which I think can be so valuable. And is there any way that you can talk a little bit more about that and what the spectrum shows us? And if we're on one end of the spectrum measuring like fives or six on the Bristol stool chart, what that might mean? Yeah, I think that we have to be looking at what our body is releasing or not releasing. So when it's harder to eliminate, when we're more on the constipated side, and I love talking about poop too. So (laughs) when we're on the more constipated side, we have to recognize that poop is one of our best ways that we naturally detoxify. So poop and sleep to me are non-negotiables in and of themselves. So when things are harder to pass or they're drier or they're on that level that is just pellets or not coming out as a tube, we have to think about what we're not releasing and recognize that that inability to release may be causing other signs and symptoms that we're experiencing. So of course, at this point, thinking about your hydration and whether you're eating uh, too much fiber or not enough fiber and experimenting, but starting with hydration and supporting your body with some things that help your body to move the toxins out of you. That's what poop is. It's eliminating what we don't need. And there's a lot of different reasons. You probably hear me kind of skirting around the why, because there's so many different reasons why that might be happening. It could be food intake. It could be sleep. It could be blood sugar or thyroid issues. There's so many reasons that can lead to constipation. 
When we think about the other end of the spectrum where things are very loose or very watery, there's usually some level of inflammation happening in the digestive system. And that could be transient, meaning it's just related to the food that we ate or the stress we're under at that time. But if it's chronic, we are losing key nutrients that the body needs to function, to Mm. heal and repair. So just watching trends versus transient factors for me is one thing that also helps us correlate that food and mood area with what we're then eliminating. How do you feel about poop? Relation related to what I said, Dom. No, since I you're think, so into it. No, I think that's great, and I think it's one of the more immediate feedback tools that we can we can use for ourselves to just constantly be checking. And most people, I mean, the way we've built pooping into our society is we go, we don't we don't take a look, we just shut the lid and flush it down. And I think that we're missing out on a very key opportunity to be able to learn a lot more about how our body is processing what we're putting in and. Yeah, how we might be able to draw some connections, just like you said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, I always, people always ask me about testing because in functional medicine, it's very uh, prevalent and hot to do all kinds of functional testing. And it's not that we don't do it. There's just a lot of things we look at before we go to the fancy, expensive testing. Yeah. And one of them is just like you said, look in the toilet. That's one of your best diagnostic tools. And then there's other labs that we're all going to be getting from our doctor that are very informative before we have to be shelling out a lot of money on specialty tests. Especially if you're going to a practitioner to be able to go in and say things like, oh, this is kind of what my stools normally look like, but I've kind of noticed this trend if I eat X or Y or this or that, like it gives that practitioner so, even if you have no clue what it means, it gives that practitioner so much more to go off of. A thousand percent. And we have to also recognize that for the most part, doctors, most doctors, medical doctors receive about 17 hours on average nutrition training in their 46, 47,000 hours of medical school. (laughs) And so they may say to you, it doesn't matter. And that doesn't mean it doesn't matter. It means they don't know what it means. And so recognizing that we don't need to convince our doctors who don't understand nutrition about nutrition or that what we eat matters to our body, we need to know internally with that agency that yes, nutrition is about growth, metabolism, and repair. And I know you two are so much about that repair. And nutrition, of course, plays a role. And we need to take that ownership as patients for ourselves, without looking for all the validation outside. Oh, yeah. And I think it was it was interesting I, when I was looking just through your stuff. It's, you, you talk about changing the bacteria within the body rather than just changing the diet. And I'm curious of how those interplay or they don't and what exactly that means. Yeah, big question. I mean, there's so much our bacteria and our gut microbiome. I think there's just so much information out there now. It wasn't like this when I started in practice. So, you know, some of my friends were like, you're talking about the microbiome over a decade ago, and now it's all over the place. But we know that the gut is connected to the brain and the gut is connected to the immune system. There's so many interconnections that we know now. And the gut really is about what I like to think of as feeding our microbiome because in our colon, they are more prevalent, the bacteria, than we are. And we need a lot more diversity than most of us have today. And we do a lot that uh, impacts that diversity and impacts the numbers as well of our bacteria. So when we think about feeding the bacteria, there's different foods we can eat that support the feeding of the microbiome, which then in turn feeds our optimal health and our health outcomes. So the classifications that I like to look at for feeding the microbiome are our resistant starches, our polyphenols, and of course, our ferments or our probiotic-rich foods. 
And those are great ways that we support the diversity in the bacteria that then again, it's not like you're going to do it and you're going to feel it, but it is by nature supporting your physiological health and your psychological health. Can you give us just a few examples of where we might find things like those, the resistant starches, the yeah. polyphenols, and um, the, some of those probiotics, like the ferments? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So the resistant starches are super cool because they bypass digestion and they literally go and feed the microbiome. And these, some of my favorites are green bananas or green plantains. Those are two of my favorites. You can do cold potatoes or cold rice. So the makeup of the starch changes once it's been cooked and cooled and it operates differently in the body. So it helps us to produce some of the uh, factors in our microbiome that help to feed those bacteria like short-chain fatty acids. And that may be technical language, but just think about it as feed your microbiome, green bananas, green plantains, cooked and cooled rice and cooked and cooled potatoes. Those are great forms of resistant starches. And they're called that because they're resisting digestion. So they're not increasing your blood sugar. They're actually bypassing that going right to the colon. Mm -hmm. Our polyphenol rich foods, two of my favorites are blueberries and green tea. So I love to drink my matcha green tea in the morning. It has a lot of the polyphenols and also has other constituents that help with our immune system and our hormone balance. And our probiotic-rich foods are our sauerkrauts and our kimchi and our miso and tempeh, um, natto. Those are all fermented foods, all the fermented vegetables like uh, pickles, as long as they're fermented pickles. Those are great probiotic-rich foods. So mm -hmm. having some diversity of those foods, and again, you don't need to go overboard. It's more about the diversity than it is about uh, getting one thing continually and only that all the time. That's so great. And I think that's going to help people just to say, okay, how could I start to add and just sprinkle some of this stuff in? Do I even put it in? And and I think a lot of times you wait for the bananas to stop being green before you eat them. Right. So being, you know, having this information, having this this accessibility to understand what you can add in, I think is so, so crucial and so huge. And the one thing that, you know, everyone always wants to know is, well, what do I do for my nutrition? What am I supposed to eat? And uh, you've you've talked about this a little bit before, you know, how individual it is for each person. But how do you get past that when everyone is talking about it on social media? This is the good thing. No, this is the good thing. And and how, how do you approach that with people? Yeah, it's so challenging. And there is a lot of uh, a lot of noise about what's the right one way. I mean, you could go from keto to vegan and like scrolling through your Instagram, yeah. right? Like it's so <laughs> yeah. overwhelming what the different approaches it are. And then also there's a lot of anti-diet culture right now where mm -hmm. people are pushing back against the culture of dieting. And I think that's all, all of it's important. And there's messaging in all of it. And I do think it's highly individualized and why it comes back to that self-tracking and what you know works for you. Mm. However, what we could all be doing is eating a whole foods diet as much as possible. So eating real foods that aren't overly processed, looking at ingredients on anything you buy and understanding what the ingredients are. Do you know what they are that are in the foods that you're buying? And ideally leaning more towards foods that are one ingredient. And the best thing we can do is look for diversity in our food. So eating the rainbow. So I like to think of the areas that influence the foods we eat as quality, quantity, diversity, and timing. And that's, again, unique for each of us. So you can pick one of those and think, what's the quality of the food I'm eating? And that's probably a great way to start with the quality and the diversity. 
So, you know, one of the things I do as a very busy person (laughs) is I have some of those meals that I can prep for myself because I'm now an empty nester. My son's 21. I live in the house alone, but I'm super busy. I invest in one of those food services where I still need to cook it, but I'm getting more diversity in my diet Mm -hmm. than I would get from shopping for one. So that's one way just for me as a solo eater for most of the days a week that I'm making sure I get the reds and the purples and the greens in instead of what I would normally do is eat a lot of green all the time and not get in those other colors. So that's just a quick tip. I'm probably in a different place than most of your audience um, who may not be eating for one. (laughs) No, but that's great. Totally, Andrea. (laughs) I think that was an awesome tip. And I, I mean, it doesn't also have to be hard. Like you just said, there's there's either food prep services or learning where that food prep fits in your busy schedule and also figuring out what those five ingredient meals are, or that those two minute meals are that you can quick throw together. I mean, last night, Jen was like, I don't know what I want to eat. And I'm like, I'll put together an arugula salad that had arugula was dressed with a tiny bit of balsamic and olive oil, blueberries, walnuts pickled red onions and a tiny crumble of feta on top. And it was delicious, Perfect. but it hits yeah. a lot of those. You get your polyphenols in there, you get your pickled <laughs> your pickled thing in there. And so it, it's mixing in a lot of those things. And it, it took me two minutes to put together. So I think that's amazing. And the, the one thing I kind of want to go back to something you said about creating your, your yes, maybe and no list and how we do have this anti-diet culture where even that word no, like ha- having a no list uh, can can be kind of toxic for some people where it, it starts to create a disruption in that relationship. And I love on your page and in your resources how you talk about the relationship and you talk about the psychology of how this is something we need to build over time. So as as you're consulting with people on creating this new relationship with food, how do we avoid it from becoming toxic where we have ice cream and cookies and donuts on our no list because we know how we felt after we had some of that in the future when we're presented with that choice, how do we start to not make it a bad relationship in our head? Mm, That's such a good question. And the no, maybe because it doesn't make us feel good. And I encourage us to think into how do I feel after it, not what do I think I'm supposed to do. Mm -hmm. So that no list isn't about a supposed to, it's about that quote unquote mood, that air quote mood area. Wow, this doesn't make me feel great. And then is there more, ask yourself, is there something I can do or is there some way I could get support that allows this to be a yes for me or do Mm -hmm. I want this to be? a yes for me. So what I mean there is sometimes if something is a no, it may be a no right now because something needs support inside of our body or because we just don't react to it. I mean, I just mentioned my son is 21. He had an assignment he had to finish last night and he's in New York. I'm across the country. And he said, I think I got glutened this weekend. And (laughs) he doesn't exclusively avoid gluten but he knows if he eats something to a certain extent that he's going to feel tired and fatigued and he doesn't like it. So he then has the internal mechanism to know, you know, I'm okay with a beer on occasion or having something that's been cooked in a similar fryer, but I don't eat a burger bun or I don't eat a piece of pizza because it makes me tired and I don't want to be tired. Mm -hmm. I have stuff I want to get done. Similarly, when he was in, you know, uh, in middle school, he didn't like how he was breaking out and he started to drink more water and eat, uh, avoid sugar, which Mm. he had never eaten as a little one. But he made those, I, he made that identification himself. And when we Mm. have that, that's what I mean by the no. versus the, like, I'm not supposed to. Like, he was making associations. My skin's better when I don't eat sugar. And so now he's kind of lost his sweet tooth, but he doesn't avoid it. He just monitors it, right? So Mm -hmm. there's a difference there. And then 
why is it that we feel like it's a no is something that may take some investigation and support. So it's not in that should arena. Um, I hope that makes sense mm-hmm. with your question, Dom. It's so totally. complicated for each individual because there is societal pressure. There's our psychology around food. And then there's the actual physiological response. Oh, yeah. I mean, I I love the way that you break it down, though, and give that example from your son. I think that's super helpful just to be able to start to visualize and see, okay, conceptualize how can this fit in my life and what does that mean to me? And and I I just love the way that you're breaking it down. Um, Something also that really caught my mind or caught my eye is, you know, you said that 75% of patients with autoimmune disease are women, which is very high <laughs> yes. of a number. And, and I mean, looking at what you, you know, some of the common ones that you described, it makes a little bit more sense when we're talking about endometriosis and Hashimoto's and, and celiac disease. But can you explain that a little bit? And why is it that we're seeing such high rates of autoimmune disease? Yeah, it's such high rates. I mean, I was thinking about these numbers and it's, you know, it's like 80 million and it's probably so much that's not even addressed. It's mm-hmm. it's so many of the people who are searching for answers because it usually takes three years for doctors minimum to receive a diagnosis. And so there's so many people walking around with undiagnosed signs and symptoms. And when they don't resolve easily, that's when there's this quest kind of starts with what's going on. And there's a lot of factors. I like to talk about them in another three, where I talk about the three roots, many branches. So the three roots, before I get there, any branch is any sign, symptom, or diagnosis. That's where Mm. we start to go, okay, this is the manifestation of the tree, but we have to ask, why is this happening? And if we go deeper to the trunk, deeper still to the roots, the roots that I've identified are the genes, digestion, and inflammation. And so those three roots have been activated in some way for the individuals, and I'm one of them, who have been diagnosed with an autoimmune condition. Mm -hmm. And that's just more and more prevalent. So the genes are activated or turned on, or the volumes turned up, and they were set, they helped set the stage for that autoimmunity, but they couldn't do it alone. They had to be in conjunction with something going on in the digestive system. And again, it could be at the microbial level and something going on in the immune system that's put it on overdrive against self. And there are a number of triggers that can happen that tip the scale in the direction of autoimmunity. And that can be our hormones. And that's why the rates are so high for women, especially pregnancy is a huge trigger for autoimmunity as is stress. So that number for women is so high because we're a little bit more internally complicated. (laughs) And there's a lot more that could be triggered for the female body than for the male body. Mm. I think that's so important to keep in mind. And, and also many women who are in relationships with men have to deal with men. So that can cause a lot of stress sometimes. <laughs> um, <laughs> exactly. We have to be thinking about that. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, but so you, you brought up just now hormones and I know you talk a lot about testing and more specifically blood testing. And I kind of wanted to briefly briefly for how large a topic it is, <laughs> touch on testing and what it means to have deficient amounts of something or or how we measure nutrition levels or levels of different vitamins, minerals, blood markers that we have versus what we what you would consider a functional amount. I know that you talk about the difference between being deficient in something versus having a functional amount of something in your system. 
Yeah. And I like to start with those regular old serum labs, like I was talking about. And one of the non-negotiables I talked about, like sleep, poop, and blood sugar balance is a non-negotiable period for our health overall, but also for our hormones, going back to what you were asking about, Dom. So looking at our blood glucose, which is on a serum metabolic panel, and understanding if there are issues there, going a step further and looking at a hemoglobin A1C, which is a measure of blood sugar over a period of time. So understanding, and those are things we can talk to our doctor about, if there's anything that we should be writing the scales of with our blood sugar. Because for me, I think of hormones in a pyramid. Blood sugar is the bottom baseline. And then insulin, how does our body respond to that blood sugar, which are just the sugars in our blood that we're feeding with what we eat. But also, that's a very unique response to our blood sugar. Two people could eat the same diet and have a different response. So Mm -hmm. again, going up the pyramid, blood sugar, insulin, cortisol, so that's our stress response, thyroid, and then our sex hormones. And a lot of people jump to the thyroid or the sex hormones or the cortisol and the stress hormones without looking at the blood sugar. So for me, it's a very tiered response. And then to answer your functional question, when I'm looking at labs, I'm always looking through a functional, which is a narrower range than a pathological range. Mm. So when we look at a pathological range with blood tests, we're determining, is that in a potential disease state? And typically, you're looking for the H or the L on the labs that you get back from the lab draw or from your doctor. When we look at them more functionally, we're narrowing the range to say, is your body in its most functional place, meaning does it work versus are we in the gray zone? Um, And then, you know, with hormones, there might be other things we need to look at that are specialty labs. But first, we're looking at the blood glucose. We will look at a full thyroid panel, which is not just your TSH, um, which is a whole other topic. (laughs) But there's a lot we can look at right in those lab markers. And hopefully that explained the difference between a functional lens versus a pathological. And how would someone like, are there anywhere that they could look up? Okay, would I got my regular blood drawn just from my family practice medicine or you know, I, just from my family practice doc, how can I look at these in more of a functional range versus just the pathological that I receive? Is there a way for people to do that? It's it's hard. It's not an easy thing to do. But the thing I would recommend is to create a Google sheet or an Excel sheet and start to log all your blood markers that you've received over time. And this is probably not something somebody's going to do who feels fine, mm-hmm. right? But for those who are struggling and not getting better with your symptoms, creating a spreadsheet, we actually have a form that we use and give to patients in our clinic. But even a spreadsheet works where you just mark the numbers that you're receiving in relation to the blood marker. And don't worry to begin with whether it's functional or pathological. That might be in the hands of a appropriately trained practitioner. But for us as patients, what we could be looking at is, was there a big change at any point over time? And that's a good lens in as well. Uh, my boyfriend is an engineer and He has his labs all the way back till he was in his 20s and, you know, he's in his 50s now. And it's a great resource for me to look back and see like when in time did this change and what else was going on Mm -hmm. in his life. Mm -hmm. But it's hard for a patient to understand the functional versus the pathological because it's not just the number. Mm. There's other factors I'd be looking at, like how do they look together with other numbers? I call that a constellation. And then also the trend, what happens over time. So those three areas, functional versus pathological, trends versus determinants. This one marker is just this one moment in time. It's not a be-all, end-all And how does this look with other relevant or associative markers? 
as a practitioner, that's my lens, that would be hard for a patient to take on. Yeah, I mean, it, it is a lot. So I think working with someone like yourself or, or, you know, with the practice that you have, to be able to identify deeper if they were having these kinds of issues is so important. Do you also recommend, you know, if, if someone wants to start to get to understand their blood glucose a little bit deeper, do you recommend going and getting, you know, a test at Walgreens where they could pick their prick their finger after meals or get that continuous glucose monitor? Do you do you recommend people take a deeper look in that aspect? Yeah, if something's not showing up right on the serum blood glucose markers, or if you want to get that deeper dive in, I love that opportunity. And, you know, when I was doing this a decade ago for myself and teaching other patients to do it, we didn't have access to CGMs Mm -hmm. that weren't huge. Yeah. (laughs) Now, it's still not so easy to get them. I know it can be hard, but they do make that a much easier. But there's a lot of data there that really helps us. A lot of people think they're hypoglycemic when they actually have a slight cellular resistance to the uptake of the glucose into the cell. And Mm -hmm. so that can be really, really helpful. Again, if you're being trained to look at what you're looking at, and and this goes back to even that idea of the food mood poop tracker. Sometimes we want to do the assessment and make recommendations for ourselves before we actually have collected the data and know how to look at it. Mm -hmm. Oh, I think that's so important. Jen and I just recently did some, uh, couple rounds. I did a couple rounds of a CGM and Jen did one as well. And it's, it's pretty amazing at just seeing how your body reacts to different foods, but also how you can just change up timing and some small things to get such a drastically different reaction, even if you're eating the same exact food. So I, I think totally. that it can be a valuable tool to just, again, like, like you've been saying, add into that bag of knowledge of how you understand yourself, your body and how you react to certain things. I, There's one last topic that I really kind of wanted to touch on quick, and I do think that this can become a controversial one or one that that individuals might push back against because I think there's a lot of language these days that blames our genetics for for the result, for our health results, and saying like, oh, I have X because of my genetics. And I think that there's a lot of places in medicine or in society that's kind of planting those seeds um, but I know when we talk about epigenetics, there we have so much more power to influence that. Totally. A thousand percent. It's one of my favorite topics. And I think there's so much power and agency we have when we realize that there are factors within our influence. I'm not going to say control, but within our influence that affect those genes. They're either turned on, they're turned off or the volume is changing. I also see a lot of people, and I don't know if this resonates with your audience, but likely will with both of you, like they blame their they blame conditions on their SNPs or on their MTHFR poly like, oh well I have MTHFR. Well we mm-hmm. don't even know if it's activated, right? So when we learn these things about our genes, they're not telling us anything. I try to remind people to think of their genes as wallpaper. It's in the background, but you're standing in front of it. So there's a lot of metaphors used for epigenetics, some that aren't so desirable right now um, in terms of, you know, your genes load the gun and the environment pulls the trigger. The environment is that those epigenetics. We can also think about it maybe more appropriately in this moment of time as You've been dealt a hand of cards, Mm. but how you play those cards is up to you. And Mm. you can play a game of poker and two people are going to be dealt the same hand of cards, but they're going to play it differently. And the epigenetics are how we play our hand of cards. And so the factors I like to think of as influential are the food, our movement, our environment, and our mindset. And all of those things are vast. There's so much we can go into in each of those. And they all collectively have the power to help influence our genetic expression. So when I say genes are a root for autoimmunity, it does not mean that you can't influence 
the expression of your autoimmunity. I have been set up to be diagnosed with Hashimoto's. I've reached that tipping point, but I can manage my Hashimoto's. It doesn't manage me. Mm-hmm. And that's because I understand that my circle of influence around each of those three roots. And for the genes, again, it's food, movement, environment, and mindset. Yeah, I mean, if we could just go back to at least taking a look at the basics and starting to get real with ourselves, right? Am I sleeping enough? Am I really drinking enough water? Am I moving every day? It doesn't have to be an intense workout, but am I moving? And and when we start to to put those into play, you don't have to just blame our genes on everything. <laughs> don't have to just blame our parents for everything that we're given. <laughs> and I think that that could be just so immensely powerful. So I just appreciate everything that you've you've brought to this podcast episode and and brought to the attention of one, what is functional <laughs> diet or nutrition, and what does that look like, and how can we start to implement small factors into our life? I think that's huge. Where can people learn more about you. And and if they wanted to take a deeper dive, if they are dealing with chronic illnesses, where can they get help? Yeah, it was so much fun to speak with both of you. And I know there's a lot of like-mindedness in what we do in our different areas. So thank you again for spending the time with me and asking such great questions. You can always learn more at andreanakiyama.com. That will lead you back to the company I founded, the Functional Nutrition Alliance, to my podcast, and to any of the writing that I'm currently doing. Amazing. That's fantastic. Thanks so much for coming on. Um, I'm sure we'll stay in touch in the future and we will link up all that down in the show notes. So thanks so much for your time, Andrea. Another incredible interview. Thanks for sticking around to the end. If you're looking for ways to support us and support the show so that we can continue doing what we're doing and put out incredible information, Go check out KoboBoard. They just came out with the KoboBoard Plus. It's an incredible in-home workout tool that can get you a full body resistance workout. Link is down in the show notes. And remember, we mentioned at the beginning, we have now on sale the Gen Health platform so you can go get in. That link will also be down in the show notes. There's a free one-week trial for you to try things out, get into a plan that's going to help you with your aches and pains on whatever body part that you've been looking for the solutions for. And of course, you can subscribe to the podcast, rate and review it on your favorite podcasting platform. And we will see you next time on the next episode of the Optimal Body Podcast.